if you guys have, um, if you have Bibles with you, we're going to be in Psalm 73. We're kind of between a major series right now, and, and um, before Advent, we are just in the Psalms for a few weeks. Um, uh, everybody turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we will have the text on the screen, so never fear. Um, let's pray before we begin. Lord, we come to you humbly asking that your word would make an impact on us, that we would hear and learn more about who you are, and that it would give us the grace that we need to walk faithfully in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, now, I, uh, I have permission from my son to tell this story, just so you know. Right? We discuss these things in advance, but um, I kind of have a, uh, I have a problem with chocolate. Um, this is well known to my family. In fact, if, if chocolate was like a controlled substance, then I'm the Rolling Stones in the 70s, all right? <laughs> like it's that level. Just to give you an idea, when Sharon, my wife, goes to Trader Joe's and gets chocolate things from Trader Joe's, my kids would literally say, Mock, where can we hide these from Dad so that they're not all gone in two days? And they literally hide it from me. If that, if that doesn't convince you, I've eaten chocolate that I've bought for other people <laughs> in the hospital. <laughs> That's real. Yeah, so, so that... Because I'm about to go down a few notches in everybody's eyes, all right? So this was several years ago. We were having a Valentine's Day party. And um, Sharon, when she throws a party, like, throws down. And, um, and so she made these strawberries, chocolate-covered strawberries, not store-bought. Like, she starts with big things of chocolate and has, like, a furnace that she melts them in and then coats the strawberries. These things are a problem for me. Like, I really like them. And, uh, and so we were cleaning the house and getting it ready. And, and uh, my son, Abe, was, was, like, five years old or so at the time. And uh, I, w- we, I was doing my part and looked in the fridge, and there was a, a big silver platter, literally on a silver platter, full of those chocolate-covered strawberries. I swear, a light emanated from inside of them. It was just glowing like that. There was nothing else in the fridge, just that. But I mastered myself, because I knew I would be in so much trouble if I ate any of those. So I shut the fridge after a sore trial, and I turn around, and on the counter right behind me, there was a little plate with two chocolate strawberries on it. And I said, my wife knows me so well, right? This is clear what this is. This is, this is like, you know, you take a goat to the dragon, so he just eats that goat and doesn't eat the whole flock, right? That kind of thing. And I didn't think any more about it. Clearly, this is for me. I eat both right then. And literally, as I'm swallowing the last bite, Sharon walks in and says, you didn't eat those chocolate strawberries that were right there, did you? I was like, no. <laughs> no, I don't know what happened to them. She says, because Abraham, five years old at the time, has been cleaning the entire downstairs by himself, because I promised him that if he did, he would get two chocolate strawberries all to himself. And I was like, oh, <laughs> literally dude walks in right then. He's all dusty. I mean, not, he's not dusty, but imagine that he's dusty. Okay, it's better. It's a better story if he's dusty. He comes in dusty, and he looks at the plate where his chocolate strawberries were. And then he looks at, at me. Hey, he looks at his mom. And he's like, what are my chocolate strawberries? Now, Sharon has my back, so she says, your father ate them. 
And my son looked at me through his little Justin Bieber bangs with a just burning resentment. And then he went to the couch and starts pounding other Christians going, that's not fair. And it's true. He discovered that day the world is an unjust place and someone had to teach him. It might as well be me. No, in all seriousness, like that, the feeling that he felt inside of he did all the right things and he did not get what he deserved. That's injustice in a nutshell, is it not? When people do not get what they deserve, either right or wrong, that's injustice. And we simply can't accept it. It causes resentment. It causes anger. Right now, that, that's a micro level. But we look across the world, and we, we see that there's injustice in every stage of society. In every country, in every time period, there's never been a perfectly just place. Right? Like, there have been many tyrants who end the lives of thousands and millions and die an old man comfortable in their bed. That's not just. There are people who work hard, honest hard work every day of their life and die penniless. That's not just. And, and, and conversely, there's people who fall backwards into money through no credit to them and, and get to live like kings. Some of those are kings. <laughs> That's not just. There are some of you who like, yeah, I've, I've, I've been faithful to the Lord. I've been walking with God. I've stewarded my sexuality just how God says, and I'm still single, hating it. While somebody else, like your, your pastor, is married to a smoke show and like it's a complete moron. Right? Like, we look at, look at how there is, there's two sets of laws in the U.S. for those who can afford great attorneys and those who cannot. That's not just. And when we start to, when we start to think about the injustice of the world, there's a tension there. Because we believe that God reigns, and we believe that God is just, so what do we make of this? that there is this world that is full of injustice and then there's a God of justice. Something doesn't make sense. And, and, and the struggle is like, well, is God good? Can I trust him? Right? Am I going to follow God? Am I going to do all these things and then I don't get the reward? Things don't go the way they're supposed to. I steward my health great. I still get cancer, right? Like, like what's the point? That's exactly the problem that the writer of Psalm 73, someone named Asaph, deals with. Now, let, let's just get into the, the text real quick in verses 1 through 3. We got it? All right. This is a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, pure in heart doesn't mean sinless there. It means someone who embraces God and his covenant. It says, but as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Now that's being poetic, for I nearly gave the whole thing up of following God. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity 
of the wicked. Now, this is a wisdom psalm. Those of you who were here for Psalm 1, a wisdom psalm. In Hebrew wisdom, wisdom isn't about, like, insightful. Wisdom is about how do you live a righteous life. In particular, this psalm is addressing how do you walk faithfully, how do you live righteously when you're living in this unjust world and, and, and trying to maintain a walk with a just God. We're going to see that the psalmist is going to move from resentment over the injustice of the world all the way to praise and resolution. Now, remember that the psalms are different from the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible is an inspired word from God. This is the inspired word to God. This is meant for the people of God to sing to God in public worship, right? So this is inviting all of us who struggle with the injustice of the world, who say, God, how about this? How could I trust you if this is how the world works? If, if, if that's you, then we are going to be taken on a journey from resentment to praise. I'm going to give you the outline ahead of time so that it's clear. He, he does three things. He, it tells us to do three things. One is to admit our struggle. Second is to remain faithful. And third is to see the big picture. So, those of you who take notes, there you go. Admit our struggle, remain faithful, see the big picture. So first of all, he admits his struggle. Look with me at verses 3 through 14. It says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Right, so he's saying, hey, these people who don't follow God at all, things are working out great for them. The arrogant wicked, they're, they're doing great. What's the deal? He says, therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. So, so not only are they wicked, they're proud of it. They wear it like a necklace. Get that? He says, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. A little side note, this eyes swell out through fatness. This is language you would use of like livestock. So it's not flattering language. He's saying they're gross, but they're happy gross. <laughs> they're, they like being gross. I want you to remember that he refers to them with animal language for later. It says they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. You form in the picture of these folks? They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault of them. Meaning, people even like leave following God and say, well, these guys clearly have it going. I'm going to be like them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. By the way, wicked here doesn't simply mean the things that a person does. It means a total rejection of God. That's the idea of what wicked means. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All of, all of the more difficult path that I've walked following God, it isn't worth it. These guys are making out like bandits while I am what? He says, all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. You ever heard a worship song like that before? I don't think I have. 
But he's keeping it pretty real, isn't he? He's being pretty transparent about his struggle. He admits his struggle. Remember, this is the inspired word to God. This is considered good for God's people to sing to God, admitting resentment. And that's hard sometimes. We fear to admit resentment, don't we? I, I, have, I have a lot of daughters, so I've seen Encanto a lot. And uh, in Encanto, for those of you who don't know it, you should see it. Uh, it's really good. Uh, but it's, the, it's about this family, um, the family Madrigal, who, who like all have superpowers, basically, and they protect this village. Everybody except for the main character, Mirabelle. And Mirabelle's role in the family is just to kind of be supportive of the people with powers, right? And, and be happy about it. And so she's singing this big pivotal song. And, uh, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda has a way with words. Uh, it's, she says, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. I will stand on the side as you shine. I'm not fine. I'm not fine. <laughs> and, that, and that's like, it's a big turning point. It's incredibly difficult for her to even acknowledge that she's struggling. She's afraid of what will happen, that it'll upset everything. And, and that's what we feel like, too. We feel like if we admit to God or if we admit to someone else that we're struggling with the injustice of the world, that the whole thing falls apart, that God is going to be mad at us, that, that we're going to be betraying, you know, the faith or something like that. It's especially hard if you're in leadership, right? If other people are looking to you to guide them and, and, and you have this struggle, well, look, Asaph was, was one of the most prominent people in all of Israel, and he wrote it down for everyone to sing. This is how normal admitting our struggle should be. But there is an important, um, whatchamacallum, what do you call these in bowling? The... No, there's not a gutter to it. What do you, bumpers, when you put the, this is how I bowl, you put the inflatable <laughs> things down the gutters so that you can't miss. There's important... <laughs> Bumpers. I don't like that. There's something else important here that, that says, yes, we admit our struggle, but. That's a caveat, isn't it? A qualification? I'm really drowning now. <laughs> All right. There's an important something on this. Here, it, and this, this is why. All right. So when and where we express this struggle really matters. Like um, I've been listening to, uh, or I listened to the, the, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. I talk about it all the time. It's, it's, it's impactful. You should listen to it too. So they did a whole episode on someone named Josh Harris. And for those of you who were kind of part of evangelical culture in the 90s, he wrote a, a book that is now widely condemned called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And this was a guy who like had never been to seminary, had never been married. He's like, listen to me for marriage advice. Right? People bought it. That's on them. Um, but anyway, it's, it's sold tons and tons of copies. He becomes this megachurch pastor, and then the whole thing falls apart. His church has issues. He starts having issues in his faith, and uh, he decides he's finally going to go to seminary to, like, work out his struggles. But, like, the, the way I know all this is because he live-tweeted all of this, right? Like, I'm struggling in my faith. I'm leaving and going to seminary. And in seminary, is he exploring everything. Like, someone, he has someone make a documentary film about him. 
right? He's like, here, watch the documentary about me working out the, the sort of messy things in my life. And, and then all of a sudden, he like renounces the faith and divorces his wife. He kisses marriage goodbye. And, and then that landed, huh? Yeah, anyway. Uh, Anyway, he, he like goes into this whole thing where he's renouncing the faith, and, and then he comes out and publishes a curriculum. He'll teach you how to renounce the faith, a starter pack for just $275, right? And it's like, it's all very, very public. Like, the way he's working through his struggle is just online, right? It, without regard for how it affects anyone or anything. So the next thing that Asaph says in here is really, really key. We not only admit our struggle, but look at verses 15 through 17. It says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. This is saying, if I, if I had just did my dirty laundry before I had processed all the way through it, then I would be betraying God's people. I would be betraying your people, God. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. So there's an important caveat that through the struggle, we remain faithful. First of all, to God, right? You see that that's his concern there. He's saying, I'm not going to do my, my laundry in public. I'm going to, you know, tell people about it when I've worked through it. Otherwise, I'd be betraying your children, God. And we also see that all the while he's going through this struggle, he's where? He, he's uh, until I walked into the sanctuary. He's remaining committed to God and his people while he's working through this difficulty. Right? Remaining faithful is really essential to working through something. I hope this isn't news, but if you're going to work through it, if you're a married person and you're going to work through a problem, you know what a precondition needs to be? We're both in it. We're both committed to this while we work through it, right? If one of you, if one of you is like, we'll see, quit now. It's not going to work. You're not going to be able to work through it if you're not both committed. So we need to stay committed to God, even when we don't know how to reconcile the injustice of the world with a just God. We may not understand it, but we say, God, I don't get it, but I trust you, and I'm committed to you, right? Like, Holding that option open means you've given up. And also, it's really important to stay committed to God's people. And this may be hard, right? But like I've known a lot of people who they start struggling with this very issue and they withdraw from community. And they get into an echo chamber of their own thoughts. And lo and behold, they never come through, they never win through to the other side. Like, if you're an alcoholic and you want to get sober, there's two places you should not be. The first one is at a bar with a bunch of heavy drinkers, right? That's not going to work out well. You're not going to get sober. The other place you shouldn't be is alone. Where should you be? You should be with people who have come out the other side, right? So if we're talking about dealing with this struggle that, that all of us have, that we look at the injustice of the world and we say, God, what about this? I'm struggling here. Can I trust God? The place to work that out, the place to struggle through it is among God's people. We need to stay committed to God and to God's people. Now, the, the, the realization that Asaph has is not 
that he was seeing too much. It wasn't that he came to a new understanding. It's that he was seeing too little. Look with me now at, at, at verses 17 through 20. It says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So this is talking about he sees the what? The end. Before we say that God is not just, we've got to wait to the end, don't we? Before we actually evaluate that. I, I was once at a football game back when I lived in Nashville. This was 06, and I was at a Titans game. So this was, this was Vince Young, Pac-Man Jones, Keith Bullock, good team, right? And, uh, and Eli Manning and the Giants had come to town, and I had gotten free tickets. Um, and so me and my friend were there, and it was misery. Right? The Titans could not move the ball. They couldn't stop the ball. Here's how bad it was. I remember that Adam Jones, who was an incredible kick returner, actually returned a kick for a touchdown, and we were all like, yay, finally something good happened. And they called it back. And it was like a penalty the other direction. We were like, no. Like four minutes into the fourth quarter, it was 21 to nothing. So me and my friend were like, man, it's a zoo getting out of here. Let's just go. And we left, despondent. Next morning, someone was like, hey, did you see that game? I was like, yeah, it was miserable. They were like, what are you talking about? It was the greatest fourth quarter comeback the Titans have ever had. <laughs> right? and, and apparently Vince Young had just lost his mind, and, and they came back and won it by three points. <laughs> now, if I'm wa watching through the part I watched, I can conclude, yeah, Titans aren't that good. They didn't play a good game. These are it's a losing team. Because I didn't watch the whole thing. You've got to consider the entire game, do you not, before you say whether or not a team did a good job. Part of our problem is that we have such a myopic perspective of the world. Right? Like, it is not a secret. In fact, the Bible begins just about. Chapter 3 of the Bible is like the world is broken. It's not as it should be. But there's an end to the story, and you've got to consider where it's going. right? That, and and that, that's what Asaph refers to, is when God makes a full and final end of evil, the ill-gotten gain of, of, of the wicked and powerful will not last. It's like a phantom. These people that seem like institutions in and of themselves, what is it? It's, it's like a dream that we'll wake from. So first of all, we need to see the end. And then we need to see ourselves. Look at verses 21 and 22. It says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Remember I told you to remember how we referred to the, the wicked uh, oppressors as animals? Well, he, who, who's he calling an animal now? What he's saying is, I was embittered and, 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 and pricked at heart. He's saying, I was the one who was acting like a beast. I looked at them and said, they've got it going on. Right? In, in envying the wicked, he had taken on their point of view. Is that making sense? Part of the problem 
Part of the problem is that when we look at the world, we're evaluating based on very upside-down criteria. If what we value is extravagant wealth and fame and power for its own sake, right? And then we say, well, look at how the righteous, there's all these poor folk that, that, that don't have enough. And, and don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that the current economic situation in the world of radical inequality is okay. It's not. That's not the way it'll be in the kingdom. But, but if, if we end up valuing and saying, hey, the one who's living the good life is Jeff Bezos, is uh, Vladimir Putin, or whoever. Like, you're only looking at the bank account. You're looking at the, the fame and the glory and the success. You're not, how much love do those people have in their lives? You know, how much genuine depth is there to them? How much, do you think they really enjoy a day? Half as much as someone who is more whole and maybe doesn't have the money, but is truly alive inside? Right? Like, like, our scoreboard is kind of jacked up because we're like, oh, those are the winners. Those are the people winning. When, when Charlie Sheen was the news cycle, he said, he was in, in, you guys all remember this? When Charlie Sheen went crazy and, and he would say, what are you doing, Charlie? What am I doing? I'm winning. <laughs> Someone at his rose said, if Charlie Sheen is winning, that is one jacked up scoreboard. That's the point. If you see, if you see the, the, the wicked of the world as winning, that's us taking on the value system of the world and evaluating God by it. That doesn't work, does it? So we need to see the end. We need to see ourselves. We also need to see our riches in Christ. Now, obviously, this was before Jesus, but I guarantee you, if Asaph had written this after the time of Jesus, he would have referred to him. Look at verses 23 through 26. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. He's like, God's with me through all of life. He shows me how to live wisely. And then he receives me to glory. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's saying, I don't need those riches. I have riches. God gives me riches. God himself is my riches. That's the conclusion he comes to. He wasn't seeing the world too much or too clearly. He was seeing too little. He wasn't seeing enough. We need to see the end. We need to see ourselves. And we need to see our riches in Christ. We need to see the big picture. Now, real quick, does this mean that we should be content with the way the world is? No, of course not, right? In fact, like some, some of the greatest uh, reformers in world history were people who did find God to be their portion, whether it's, it's Dr. King or William Wilberforce or, or, or Bishop Tutu or, or Frederick Douglass or someone like that. These were people of very deep faith and contentment in Christ who still said we cannot accept the world as it is. But it says, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche once said, careful when fighting monsters lest you become one. A lot of the time, what, the, the talk that we hear about correcting the imbalance of money and power in the world, the solution is to, to shift the money and power, right? Like, 
nine out of 10 times, revolutions cause far more misery than, than, than they cure. If we want to oppose injustice, we can't adopt the value system of the world. We need to remain grounded with Christ as our treasure. We need to see the big picture. So we need to admit our struggle, remain faithful, and see the big picture because no matter how it seems right now, God will write injustice. And that's the conclusion in verses 27 through 28. He says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. God will write injustice. And so the way that we are able not to be totally happy with how things are, not to not struggle, but how we can remember what this, this is a, a wisdom psalm, and it's showing us how to walk. We walk knowing that even though the world is not as it should be, that God will right injustice. And here's the thing. A secular understanding of the universe, the idea that the universe is just this indifferent place, what right do we have to expect justice? Like the concept of justice doesn't even make sense. Does it? There has to be some sort of moral backbone to the universe for justice to actually make sense. And, and if, if we take God out of the equation, we can't even ask the question of why, why is the world unjust like this. But if there is a God who is capable of redeeming the world, if there is a God who is capable of righting injustice, it makes a lot of sense to trust him. It means we can have hope in this God. Not a hope that makes us complacent about the way things are in the world, but a hope that spurs us to action. In um, one of my favorite books, The Brothers Karamazov, there's a conversation between the main protagonist named Alyosha and his, his older brother who strikes the hard, rational pose. His name's Ivan. And, uh, and they have this conversation and Ivan kind of confesses to Alyosha what's actually in his heart. And he says this. He says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. Like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man. I don't know what he means there, but he says it. That in the world's finale... At the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but justify all that happened. How do we resolve the great injustices we see every day and experience? It's that God will write injustice. We need to admit our struggle. We need to remain faithful and see the big picture. Please pray with me. God, we turn in faith to you. We know that you are not content with the world as it is. But instead, 
that you entered into this world of injustice and suffered injustice yourself on the cross. Not so that, not so that we could be complacent and wait for heaven, but because you are healing your world and you want us to join you. I pray that we would hear that call this week, that you would comfort those who are struggling, that you would challenge those who are complacent. In Jesus' name, amen. We come now to the table. The Apostle Paul tells us that we, when we come to this table, we proclaim Christ's death until he returns. Our great hope is not that we can perfect the world, but that Christ is returning and he brings justice with him. When we come forward at this table, we're saying, yes, I want to be part what Jesus is doing in the world. So we invite everybody forward who has placed their faith in Christ. Um, let's take a moment of silent reflection before we take communion together. night that he was betrayed, the Lord took bread and giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body given for you. In a like manner, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sin. Take and drink it, all of you. Now, the way that we do this is we start from the front row and work our way back. Again, don't feel any pressure to come forward. Um, and uh, we... Uh, We'll come down kind of this way and return in one circuit because we do have a small room. Uh, we have gluten-free wafers for those who need them. Um, they are on your right, my left. And, uh, and we also have uh, regular wine here and then non-alcoholic, which is labeled. Um, if you have children that are not yet taking from the table, uh, please still bring them forward so that one of our elders, Caleb Coho, can pray over them. Please come. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. 
Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave. He is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slain. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of this? He is. Does the Father truly love us? He does. Does the Spirit move among us? He does. And is Jesus our Messiah? Hold forever those He loves. He does. Does our God intend to dwell again with us? He does. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave. He is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of this? He is. Let's stand and sing in response. We're going to sing, is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? And we're going to declare who he is and what he's done in our lives. So lift your voice with us. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave. He is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the From every the people slave. and tribe. From every people and tribe. Every nation and tongue. He has made us a kingdom and priests to God to reign with the Son. Is He worthy? Is He worthy of all blessing and 
bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in peace.